We come to God's Word now. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for our sermon this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let's hear the word of our God. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon it. God, we come before you this morning to hear your word, to hear it read and opened up to us. We believe your blessing that you have promised that we've heard already. Blessed is the man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. We desire to be like that tree that is planted by streams of water, that it is always growing and always fruitful. But we know, God, that we can't do this on our own. And so we need your Holy Spirit uh, to use your word, to work in our hearts. As the Spirit gives life, Paul says here, we pray that the Spirit would give us life this morning. Give us spiritual life and spiritual growth. Help us to engage our minds and our hearts during this time. And we ask that you do this for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I would guess that most of you adults have uh, put a resume together, and you know what a resume is. Some of you kids may not know what that is. It's basically a document that you turn in to someone that you are trying to find a job for, a job with, and uh, it has on there your list of accomplishments, your education, school that you went to, degrees that you got, and your work experience. And it's meant to say that you are qualified for the job that you are applying for. Anybody can apply for a job, right? But the person hiring is going to look at your resume to see if you can actually do the job, if you are competent for the job. But sometimes people lie on their resumes. 
There's a story from 20 years ago of a football coach, the head coach of Notre Dame University, who lied and it cost him a $6 million contract, which was a lot of money 20 years ago. Uh, and so he had lied on his resume about how he had been a football player on a team in college and about a fake master's degree from some NYU school that didn't actually exist. It's hard to imagine that someone in such a high-profile position could actually think that he would get away with that. You know, anybody can go on the Internet and check if he actually uh, played for that team, but he did it. He lied. And so five days after he was hired, he had to resign from his job as the head football coach. Now you might wonder, what's the big deal about lying on a resume? Well, besides the fact that it's lying and it's dishonesty, when someone lies on their resume, they are claiming that because of this experience or this education, they're able to do the job, but if they didn't have those things, then there's a good chance they're not actually able to do the job. What your resume does is it backs you up. It authenticates who you really are and who you claim to be and what you can really do. Well, we come to this passage this morning in chapter 3, and it brings up the question, what would an apostle put on his resume? What would you put to authenticate, to verify that you can actually do the job of an apostle? How do you prove to someone that you can preach the gospel of Christ? How can you show that you are competent to be a minister of the new covenant? That's what Paul is going to teach us this morning. So the main idea of this passage is that we see a real resume for a real pastor. That's what we're going to learn about this morning. A real resume for a real pastor. Now, most of you aren't pastors. And so you might be wondering, why do I have to listen to this sermon? Well, besides the fact that God is speaking to us in his word, and that's pretty important, we should pay attention. There are some ways that this passage applies to, to all of us. Well, for one thing... You might think that you're not a pastor, but God could call some of you men in this church to one day be pastors or to be missionaries. All of us who are pastors or have been missionaries, we all said at some point in our lives, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. God's not going to call me to that. But lo and behold, God calls people who feel ill-equipped, feel like it could never be them, he calls them sometimes to actually do that, those um, tasks. So it could be that you might one day be a future pastor or missionary, and you, so you need to listen to what should be on your resume. Another way this applies to our church in particular is that uh, we all know a church is looking for a pastor or pastors in the future. And so you as a church, each member, you need to know what should I look for? What should be on the resume that 
would qualify a man to be a pastor of this church. And then finally, there's application and overlap here in this passage for any Christian, for anyone who is called, as we all are, to proclaim the gospel where we are, wherever God puts us, no matter what job you have during the week to make money, God calls us to proclaim his gospel. And so I think that you will see a lot of application here of what makes you competent, what makes you equipped to share the gospel with the world around you. So we're going to begin looking at this passage, and you see it breaks up into two parts uh, as we look at the six verses. The first half uh, we call living letters. These are people who are living letters. And then the second part are the lethal letters. So let's look at the living letters and let's read verses 1 to 3 again. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul starts here uh, by bringing up this concept of a letter of recommendation or commendation, uh, some of your Bibles might say. Basically, these are what we would call reference letters or maybe a resume. They were used when someone would meet a person for the first time. They are used to introduce yourself. So imagine Paul for the first time uh, getting off the ship at Corinth and, and coming into Corinth and nobody knows who he is. He might have a letter of recommendation with him, a reference letter that would say something like, well, Paul spent two years in Ephesus and, and I know Paul pretty well. He stayed at my house and we've heard him preach many times. Paul's a good preacher. You should Give him a hearing. That's some basic kind of letter of recommendation that people would carry along with them. We actually see in Acts 18 that Apollos has a letter of recommendation that he carries with him as he's traveling along. We kind of do the same thing. Even though we don't carry around letters, we meet one another and we ask each other basic questions. And when we ask these basic questions, we get to know what we are competent at. You, you learn things about people. So you say, where are you from? Where did you go to school? What do you do for work? And the answers to those questions will tell you about the person. You'll think differently about someone who says, I went to Harvard University. That might be a good thing or a bad thing for you. You might judge them well or badly. Or someone might say, I went to Bowling Green University. So, see, you will make a judgment about that person based on which one they answer. Or someone says, uh, I'm a nuclear physicist. You'll think differently about him than someone who says, I'm a plumber. It's not good or bad. It's just you want to know what they're competent at. 
The plumber, you're going to start asking him advice about the clogs in your house. Not Probably not the nuclear physicist, right? So we do this all the time. It's a way of getting to know each other, knowing what someone is capable of or good at doing. And so Paul says in verse 1, Am I beginning to commend myself again? In chapter 2, verse 17, the verse right, right before this, he, he has been commending himself. I'm not a peddler of God's word. I'm commissioned by God. I'm an apostle. I speak in the sight of God. So, see, he's talking about himself. But he says, now, do I really have to do this again? You guys know me. I've been with you. I've preached with you. I've lived with you. Do I have to reintroduce myself to you? Do I have to prove myself again as being competent as an apostle? You guys know me. So that's why he stops himself and says, I don't really need to commend myself again, do I? And then he says, or do we need, do I need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? These some are these other apostles who have been, these false apostles who have been drawing the attention of the Corinthians, trying to draw their hearts towards them. That's who Paul is talking about. Those false apostles, they need letters of recommendation to you. In other words, they're the new kid on the block. They're the hot shots coming in and saying, here's my reference letter because they don't know you. I'm Paul. I'm, I've been your father in the faith for a long time now. I've been the steady presence in your life. And you're going to abandon me for the new kid on the block? No, they need letters of recommendation when they come to meet you. And then he says, or do we need them from you? Those some... They need letters from you, too. In other words, they are using you to pad their resume. They're they're using you because they want to draw a big crowd in Corinth so that then they can send out a flyer on their their way to Athens and they say, send out the flyer to Athens to say, 2,000 Corinthians came to our messages, our preaching. They don't care about you. They're just using you so that they can put you on their resume. So that you could be a stat to them, an attendance number. But that's not me, Paul says. Verse 2. You, yourselves, the Corinthians, you are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul's resume, Paul's reference letter is them. You're the evidence. You're the, the fruit of my ministry. You're the evidence that I'm competent to be a preacher of Christ and to be an apostle. You are my letter of recommendation. You're written on our hearts. Those other people you're just a number on a spreadsheet. You're, you're just stats to them. But for me, 
You are on my heart. I love you. I care about you. I pray for you. I'm always there for you. And so, Paul shows us what a real apostle is like, what a real pastor is like, someone who isn't using people for his own gain, but who really cares for these people. He goes on to say that this letter is known and read by all. They're the evident fruits of his ministry. And then he says in verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. The letter writer is Christ. Christ is the one who produces the fruit. Christ gives the growth. Christ is the one who accomplishes the ministry. Christ is the one who saves. The letter is from Christ. It's delivered by the apostle, by the preacher. Paul is just the mailman to accomplish the message of Christ coming to them. And then he gives us a contrast, two contrasts here. They're the living letter, they are written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the first contrast, not with ink. A normal letter that you send in the mail, of course, you know, you, you write in ink normally. You write on a piece of paper with ink. The problem with ink is that it fades. And so you've probably seen documents that are hundreds of years old, and sometimes you can barely read them because the ink has faded on them. Paul's contrasting the letter from Christ has an instrument written on it, not with ink, but with the Spirit. The Spirit of the living God, His ink doesn't fade. His work remains. The fruit of the ministry will be long-lasting if it's written by Christ using the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the other contrast, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So first was, what, what is it written with? It's written with the Spirit. What's it written on? It's written on hearts. So he contrasts tablets of stone with tablets of hearts. Now, this is a little bit strange if you just stop and think about it. He's talking about letters. And so you would expect him to say, written not on paper, papyrus. Because if you're writing with ink, you write on paper. You don't write on tablets of stone. But he is introducing this concept that we're going to see all through chapter 3 of the law of God, the law of Moses. And so that's why he doesn't say paper, he says stone. And also notice the contrast there. They're, They're both tablets. There's a tablet of stone and there's a tablet of the heart. So the contrast is not hard versus soft. The contrast is outside versus inside. There's stone on the outside, and there's stone on the inside. The law was written on external stones, tablets, tablets of stone. 
The gospel, the letter of Christ, is first written on stony tablets of human hearts. That word there that is translated in ESV human is the word for flesh. We're fleshly. And so that makes a lot of people think, well, he's contrasting soft fleshly hearts versus hard stone, which was the law. But the word flesh for Paul is almost always a bad thing. Paul talks about about this in Romans 7 as flesh meaning his sin. And so that's what I think he's talking about here, that the gospel, the letter from Christ is written upon a heart that is a stony tablet, a fleshly tablet, a, a stone, a hard, a sin-hardened heart. That's what he's talking about. He's probably making a reference to Jeremiah seventeen eleven, which says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. See, the tablet of your heart, the sin of Judah is written with a point of diamond. Why does he say diamond? Diamonds, as far as I know, are the the hardest natural substance that we can find. And so you use a diamond to cut things that are very hard to cut. So people cut tiles and things like this with diamond blades. And so the, the hearts of Judah are so hard that the only thing that can engrave is a diamond point. And so Paul is saying that the human heart is so hard that the only thing powerful enough to write a letter upon that tablet is the spirit of the living God. And this tells us about how desperate we are for salvation, about how unable we are to save ourselves. Stony tablet hearts cannot free will themselves into the gospel. Stony tablet hearts cannot make a decision to follow Jesus. You cannot make yourself on your own follow Christ. But notice something is done to you. Christ writes on your heart. The Spirit writes on your heart. That's how salvation happens. It's not through something that your heart does, but that is done to your heart. The Spirit takes your stony tablet of a heart and it changes it, enabling you then, enabling you to see Christ in his glory, as we're going to look at in chapter 4, enabling you to follow Christ, enabling you to believe, giving you even a desire to believe. That happens because the Spirit writes upon your stony heart. So, first three verses show us the living letters that human beings, people, are the letter of Christ. And that this is the commendation, the reference letter, the resume for Paul. So, how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, you can think about your own life. And if you are a Christian, you can think, who am I a letter for? 
Who am I a reference letter for? For some of you, you are the letter of commendation to Dean Allen. And Dean Allen can say, uh, up in heaven now with the Lord, yes, I know that I was competent to be a minister of the new covenant because I see that the Spirit used me to change that life and that life and that life. And for others of you who weren't there back then, it's Pastor Sarver or Pastor Hill. And some of you, if you came before from other churches, it's someone that maybe whose name we don't know. But first thing is to stop and thank God and to remember, who are you a letter for? And then the next thing we ask ourselves is, okay, well, then what do we look for? For the resume, for a real pastor. For some people, you might be impressed by the seminary that a pastor went to. Maybe they went to the reformedist of the reformed seminary that you consider the ultra seminary. Maybe for others of you, you might be impressed by the amount of degrees that a man calls himself doctor or whatever it is. Some of you might be impressed by the church that that man came from. Maybe he came from a well-known church. Maybe he came from someone who is prominent and and well-known. Maybe it's a big church that he comes from. Others of you might be impressed by the way a man speaks, his speaking abilities, or the fact that he can say on his resume that he's preached in all these churches and he's preached around the world in all these different countries. Or maybe he's published things, published journal articles and published things on the Internet, published books. That might impress you. You might say, wow, we got a big fish here. I actually heard, heard someone talk that way once about, about their pastor search. They said, we got a big fish. Oh, that's, that's disgusting. <laughs> Talking about choosing a pastor as if you're catching a big fish. That's awful. And none of those things are bad, right? But the problem there is with the fact that all of those things are human accomplishments, You can get into a good seminary, you can go to a good church, you can get doctorates, all based on hard work or intellect. You can get places to speak based on speaking abilities. None of those things prove that someone is a real pastor. You can do all those things without the Holy Spirit. Paul is a new covenant Minister, He is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so what he says are his resume are people. People. People's lives being changed. People that he loves and cares for. And so they're written on his heart. I've heard this illustration from a pastor who's talking about how you know if someone's called to ministry. And he used the illustration of Pigpen, who is a character in Peanuts. Uh, Snoopy and Charlie Brown and all that stuff. Pigpen's a character in the comics that is constantly surrounded by a trail of dust. Wherever he goes, dust follows. He even tries to bathe himself, washes himself off, and he's all clean for a second. But then he steps out and he's surrounded by dust again. 
And so that's the joke in the comic. How can he get rid of this dust? Well, the illustration there is that that is what a real minister of the new covenant is like, not surrounded constantly by a trail of dust, but should be surrounded by a trail of people whose lives have been changed by the Spirit working through him. We can't control the fruit, right? We can't control whether people are saved or not. But if someone is truly competent and qualified, then you will know by the fact that the Spirit will use that person to change people's lives. And so that that person can say, I can tell you the letters of recommendation of the people that by God's grace have been changed through my preaching, through my time that I've spent with them. And so for all of us who are followers of Christ and you have been given the the great commission to go and make disciples, another question for you then is not only who are you a letter to, but who are you a letter for? Who will look to you and say, the Spirit used him, the Spirit used her to draw me to Christ? To show me the gospel. My life was changed. I grew spiritually so much because she invested her time in me. Because he spent time teaching me the word of God. That is also your role just as a Christian and as a member of the church. Ephesians 4 talks about how the whole body is built up into maturity through the church speaking to one another the truth in love. So who are you speaking the truth to? Who are you investing in so that they will grow? So that they can look to you as the Spirit using them? Don't say, I'm too busy. Don't say, I'm not good enough. I don't know the Bible enough. God calls us to do this. The Spirit will use you if you will be obedient and devote yourself to the work of ministry in the sense of working to build up the body of Christ. Those are the living letters. We are the living letters, but now we come in the second part of this passage to the lethal letters in verses 4 to 6. I've called it lethal letters here, but we're using the word letters in a different sense. Uh, In my ESV, he uses the word letter. I don't know about your translation there in verse 6, but we're, we're not talking about epistles. We're not talking about letters that you put in the mail which is what we were talking about in verses 1 to 3. But letters in verse 6 is talking about the ABC kind of letters. And that's a reference to the law, the written down law of God that he gave to Moses. So we're going to see that these letters are lethal. The law is lethal. Let's start by going again through verses 4 and 5. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is our confidence. Our sufficiency is from God. Remember in verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul said, Who is sufficient? Who can be the aroma of Christ, spreading the fragrance of God all over the world? Who's sufficient for these things? Here's the answer. The sufficiency is not in ourselves, in verse 5, but we have confidence through Christ. Our sufficiency is from God. So if you're hearing what I said a minute ago, and again, you feel insufficient, who am I? Yeah, right. I'm not going to be able to do that. Yeah, right. Nobody's going to call me their letter of recommendation that I'm going to have this great impact on their life. No way. And you're the, you're the perfect candidate for God to use. Because people who feel sufficient in themselves, people who think they're really smart and they can just dump Bible on people, people who think they're really godly and everybody just needs to know about all their godliness and do everything that they are doing. Those aren't the people that God is going to use. God is going to use broken vessels who are humble and desire to be used by him, who see that their sufficiency is not from them, who are begging God, praying, Lord, I, I, uh, I'm supposed to meet with this person, and I feel like I got nothing to give them. Please bless our meaning. Please help this person to grow. Lord, I'm supposed to teach a class, and I'm no good at teaching. Please bless it. Is those types of people who see their sufficiency from God, they are the ones whose work God blesses. We see then in verse 6 that it's God who makes us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul says about himself, God has made him competent. So the minister of a new covenant um, is first the apostles, but also we can extend that to those who preach the gospel, who preach about Christ. They are made competent by God. Now it seems to me that Paul is making a contrast here when he brings up the new covenant that he might be saying it's really not that hard to be competent as a minister of the old covenant. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, Paul was a teacher of Judaism. But it takes God, it takes the Spirit to make you competent to be a minister of a new covenant. So imagine you have a choice between two jobs. Job number one, you work for the state of New York. And your job is to read the driving laws to all in New York. So people just sign up for your class. They sit in your class. And all you got to do is read a book, a manual of all the driving laws in New York. That's job number one. Then there's job number two. Your job is that you are ultimately responsible. That everybody in New York knows the driving laws, follows the driving laws, and on top of that is a good driver. 
You know, you can follow the laws and still not be a good driver. So, <laughs> amen. So, which job would you want? Which job is easier? It's much easier to sit there and just have to read a bunch of rules. And you get paid, you get praised, because you did your job. It would be much harder to make sure that people actually learn and apply and live out those laws. The Old Covenant was a covenant of rules. Basically, Moses' job was to announce the law of God. And that's why he kept saying, you people need to circumcise your hearts because you're stiff-necked. I can't get you guys to do any of this. You're so stubborn. Because the Old Covenant had no power to, to change people. All Moses could do was announce laws. The New Covenant, the goal is Romans 8, that you would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's not that you know the laws of God. It's not that you can even obey a bunch of laws. It's that you would be built up into maturity to be like Jesus Christ. Who can do that? Who can, who can take a church and do Ephesians 4 and build them all up into the maturity of the stature of Christ? I mean, can, can any church say we've reached the stature of Christ? Who's competent to be a minister of a covenant that says that's the goal? You can't. The competency has to come from God. The sufficiency has to come from God. It's purely a work of the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul is also contrasting himself with the false apostles, whose only job is to get a crowd, to get people to listen. They're, they don't care about whether your lives are changed. They're not trying to grow a church into maturity. They care about drawing a crowd. Anybody could could be competent to do that. I mean, plenty of people can accomplish that. But who is competent to be a minister of a new covenant? And then he goes on with more contrasts here. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, spirit gives life. Old covenant, new covenant. Moses and Christ. Not the letter, but the spirit. The letter is talking about the law. And so he says, the letter kills, the law kills. And we have to be careful here. Uh, there is all kinds of misinterpretation of that sentence uh, that would say that the law is bad. All the law is bad. We did talk about that. I hope you remember that sermon a couple weeks ago about the role of the, the Mosaic Covenant uh, so the law is not all bad, but th that's how people talk about it. I, I, for some reason, I just all week I had this hippie voice saying, verse six, the letter kills, dude, the letter kills, the spirit gives life, man. And that's, that's what I kept thinking, because I probably heard that on a college campus somewhere. You just got to walk by the spirit. 
Just listen to that voice in your head and let him guide you. Don't follow all those rules. Rules are bad. That's how people think. We don't want to give that impression. It's not that the law is bad or that rules are bad. It's just that the law has a different purpose. It has actually multiple purposes. One of them is to guide Christians. You should want to know how to please God. That's what the law helps you with. But another purpose of the law is to condemn us. It's to show us our sin. And that's what Paul means when he says the letter kills. It brings you down. And in some ways that's bad, but it's also a good thing. You need to be killed. Because we're not what Adam was before the tree, before the fruit. All of us now are sinners, but we think that we're righteous. And so we need the letter to kill us, to cast us down. Maybe you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, this scene where Christian goes into the interpreter's house and there's dust all over the floor. And interpreter tells the person to sweep up the dust, sweep the dust out of the house. And so he starts sweeping and sweeping and sweeping. And the dust fills the house and fills the air. And Christian starts to choke. And he's, all, he's about to die. And then he says to bring in the bucket of water. And somebody comes with water and they rinse the dust all out of the house. And that's a picture of law and gospel. The purpose of the law is to kick up the dust, but it's going to choke you. What we need is the Spirit to come and wash away that condemnation of the law. So, the letter kills because when we hear the law, we have sinful natures and we will then desire to break the law. You you who are parents, you you know, you've got to be careful about uh, your kids being exposed to bad words. And, you know, wherever they go, they go certain places and sometimes... They hear bad words, right? Well, you don't take your five-year-old and say to them, now look, Johnny, these are the five most popular bad words, and you're going to hear them everywhere. So I want you to learn these five bad words, but don't say them. Because if you say them, you're bad. You don't do that. You know why? Because if you tell them, what they are, and you tell them not to say them, they're going to go around saying them. Because they are sinners. They have sinful natures. Paul talks about this about himself in Romans 7. When the commandment came, sin came alive. The, The dust got swept up. He had a covetous heart. And when he heard, do not covet, he just went, oh, what's coveting? I want to do that. That's what his heart is. That's what our hearts are. That's how the letter kills. But the purpose of bringing up the dust is to get you to see that you have that sin in your heart. And so you need the law to show you just how sinful you are. Martin Luther says, when God makes us alive, he does it by killing 
When he justifies, he does it by making men guilty. When he exalts to heaven, he does it by bringing down to hell. And so for you to be saved, for you to be ready to hear the gospel, you need the letter to kill you. You need the letter to the law to show you that you cannot measure up to the law of God, that that you have that sinful nature that constantly desires to sin. That's what you need so that then as you are uh, despairing of all of your self-righteousness, as you realize that there's absolutely nothing that you can do now to save yourself, it's at that point that the spirit comes and gives you life and you call upon Jesus Christ. John Bunyan supposedly said this. I don't know who really said it, but maybe you've heard it. Run, John, work, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law just says work, 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 and that kills you. You're crushed by the burden. But the gospel says, fly. I want you to be a good driver. (laughs) But the gospel also, through the Spirit, gives you wings. Gives you the ability to actually do what God is commanding you to do. So as we look at verse 6, the question for any of us is, are you trying to be accepted by God with your work? Are you trying to earn favor or acceptance with God by your obedience to the law? Do you think, in just some small way, that if you just try harder or obey more, God will love you? Maybe right now you come today crushed because the law has crushed you. You aren't good enough. You never will be. Well, if that's you, then today is the day for you to call on the Spirit to give you life, to look to Jesus Christ, the only one who is truly righteous, who died as a substitute for sinners to take the punishment that we could never work off, never be good enough to do away with ourselves. But Christ has died. Christ has risen. He's conquered our sin and death. And the Spirit can give you life and give you the ability to call upon Christ and find salvation in Him. Call upon God. Ask the Spirit to do that today. And so as we look at the resume of a real preacher, a real minister of the New Covenant, we see that he is to have living letters. We also see that he is to proclaim the gospel, be a minister of the new covenant, and not only proclaim the law, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. For you, as you are in the world around unbelievers, don't be only known for telling everyone all the things they do wrong. (laughs) Unbelievers do a lot of things wrong, and it's very easy to point them out. 
We need to tell them what the law of God says. There are some very important things that they need to understand. But do they also know you as someone who brings the new covenant to them? Someone who holds out that there is forgiveness with God if they would repent and acknowledge their wrong. That there is unending grace with God through Jesus Christ. For those of you who are parents, it's very easy for us parents to be old covenant parents. Here's all the things that you need to do. Here's all the things you better not do. And that's important. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Parents ought to demand obedience from their children. Children need to obey their parents. But that's all that you teach them. You've taught them to be Pharisees. You haven't taught them the gospel. Because then you should come with the new covenant that says, but you know what? If you will repent of your sins, there is grace in Jesus Christ. And you know what? You're trying really hard to obey, but you have a sinful nature. You need to ask the Spirit to give you life and change your heart. And we as parents need to hold that out to our children. And a real ministry in the church needs to hold out the new covenant of Jesus Christ. May we then be like pig pen and have the dust trail around us of lives that are changed because we are insufficient, but the Spirit uses us as we preach the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. God, as we come before you now, we recognize our own sin and how much we strive for acceptance with you by the letter, how easy it is for our hearts to see our sufficiency in ourselves. So, God, we pray for your hope. May your spirit humble us. May your spirit teach us and work in us a new life. A life of humility and casting ourselves before you. And God, we pray that you might use us. Use us by your spirit alone. We who are undeserving. We pray that our church would be built up into the full stature of Christ. We pray that unbelievers would be saved and that we could be those letters of recommendation to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.